This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be covering The Warlord 24 through 26, Star Slayer number 7, John Sable number 16, and Green Arrow 17 and 18. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with occasional photos and news updates. It's there that I learned he will be appearing at a con in Australia this fall. What a great place to travel to on business. I know I would love to go there. So would I. And if you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He is always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you are unable to see Mike Grell at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, just contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He is the official representative for Mike Grell Commissions. Scott is always friendly and very helpful. And Mike Grell isn't the only artist featured at Catskill Comics. For instance, they recently posted some updates from comics legend Ramona Fraden. So check out the CatskillComics.com link in our show notes for lots of great selections from many great artists. We always enjoy sharing listener feedback, and all of the conversations with listeners on social media are great. Feel free to join in the conversations or write to us anytime. We'd love to hear your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. I'm interested in knowing what others think of Mike Grell's work and would love to know who you think are the best characters and which stories are your favorite, or who you think should be cast in a John Sable or Warlord film. We'll give you our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall while Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by Mark Schultz. We'll include links to those other podcasts in our show notes as well. (coughs) John Sable Freelance, number 16, September 1984, Return of the Cat, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, letters by Ken Brusnack, colors by Janice Cohen, edited by Mike Gold. Picking up at the museum, where the previous issue ended, John asks Maggie if she plans to steal the sword, as their last encounter cost him a $100,000 fee and left him with a bad headache from the spiked drink. She assures him that stealing the sword never crossed her mind, and walks away. Returning home that night, Sable finds Maggie waiting on his couch, drinking champagne. She compliments his burglar alarm system because it took her nearly three minutes to break in. She wants his help, and tells him about the theft of a secret formula 
known as 7X, that was stolen from a bank vault in Atlanta. She has a dossier on six thieves who are all amateurs without criminal records. One is a college professor, while the other five are all students. The company has kept the theft secret, but offered to pay $250,000 to the thieves to return the formula unopened, but the thieves refused. Maggie knows they are hiding out on a remote island and are holding an auction by radio transmitter over an international frequency. Maggie knows of one company in Japan that has already offered to pay $5 million for the formula. John is willing to help if the plan is to return the formula in exchange for the reward, but Maggie makes it clear she is interested in recovering the formula to sell it on the open market herself. The two decide to negotiate their agreement upstairs. The next morning, Maggie wakes alone and begins searching the house for Sable and finds him in the basement testing his latest modified gun in his shooting range. It is a powerful weapon with interchangeable cylinders. It can fire gas cartridges, flares, explosives, or even 8-inch steel bolts underwater. It can also shoot a grappling line. Using a sailing ship, the two sneak onto an island where the thieves are hiding and begin the reconnaissance. That night, they swim across to the island and easily take out the one student guarding the docks and the only student guarding the outside of the house. Four others remain inside. Scaling the side of the house, they pause outside a window to listen to a conversation between two more of the students and the professor. They overhear that he is a criminology professor, and the assignment he gave at the beginning of the semester was to design the perfect crime. The intention of the assignment was to prove there is no such thing as a perfect crime. But these five students seemed to prove him wrong with their idea, and together the group decided to try out the plan. As Sable listens, Maggie continues to climb to the next floor where she finds the one remaining student guarding a wall safe. When he goes downstairs to get a drink, she climbs inside and begins working on the safe, but he returns sooner than expected, surprising her. He raises his gun to fire, but she leaps and rolls and kicks him, sending him flying through the window into the sea below, Hearing the noise, the other three grab their guns, but before they can run upstairs, Sable crashes through the window, distracting them from Maggie. Maggie opens the safe, but the formula is not inside. It turns out the professor still has it, and he abandons the remaining students and tosses a lantern on a pile of explosives as he runs from the house. John and Maggie leap from the window into the sea just before the house explodes as the professor races away in a speedboat. Underwater, Sable watches the boat pass above them, and he fires several shots from his newly modified gun into the bottom of the boat. The steel bolts easily rip through the wood, killing the professor. In Atlanta, John and an unhappy Maggie return the formula in exchange for the $250,000 reward, and as the two walk outside, we see the name of the company on the side of the building. It is Coca-Cola. This was such a fun issue from beginning to end, the interaction between John Sable and Maggie is like watching William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora from the Thin Man movies, or Pierce Brosnan and Stephanie Zimblis from Remington Steele. It was a real pleasure to read and illustrates why Maggie the Cat became such a popular character. The cover is solid black, except for the paw prints of a cat and the title of the story. We've heard Mike Grell talk about this cover before. It was another cover he had to fight to get published, similar to the Target cover from issue 7. The company wanted to have the main character on the cover, but as with that other cover, this cover ended up attracting more attention by being unique and was voted the best cover of the month by retailers. 
The art throughout the issue is stunning. I love the way the image of the sword is used to divide the page at the museum. The double-page title page features Maggie relaxing on Sable's couch in front of a roaring fire, and Sable's surprised expression is great. And I love the nighttime scene of them arriving on the island. The sky, rolling waves, and path spiraling up to the house creates a terrific mood. The twist of all of this coming about because of a college assignment was a great turn, and the revelation that the secret formula wasn't for some destructive weapon, but was in fact the formula for Coca-Cola, was a hilarious way to end the story. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the worst comic podcast ever. I'm Jerry. I'm John. I'm Cullen. And we do news, reviews, and interviews dealing with the world of comics. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or our email, worstcomicpodcastever at gmail.com. And this is a podcast 30 years in the making. This is the worst comic podcast ever. The Warlord, number 24, August 1979. The Song of Legia. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks by Vince Coletta. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by Ben Oda. Edited by Jack C. Harris. A lone merchant ship rides the waves below the blazing eternal sun of Scataris. Aboard, Travis Morgan stares off into the distance as the sailors go about their business around him. Morgan sees an approaching vessel and calls out to the captain and crew to prepare for battle. The fast-approaching ship has a steel ram affixed to the front of the ship, and it soon plows into the merchant vessel, easily splintering the wooden timbers. Morgan leaps aboard the raider's ship, the anticipation of battle momentarily relieving the grief in his mind. The warlord dispatches many of the raiders and kicks a flaming brazier onto the deck, but just then an arrow rips through his shoulder and knocks him overboard into the sea. Grasping at floating debris, Morgan soon passes out from the loss of blood and dreams of Tara before slipping from the floating debris and sinking into the ocean. There, Legia, a beautiful, green-skinned, mythical, nymph-like creature, finds him and creates a magical dome filled with air. She stares at the arrow and opens her mouth in a song of gentle tenderness as she pulls the arrow from Morgan's shoulder. Continuing her song, Legia touches the wound in Morgan's shoulder, which disappears from his shoulder, only to appear on her own shoulder. In pain, she sheds a single tear which falls on the wound, healing it. Legia looks into Morgan's mind and sees the painful memory of killing his son. She again opens her mouth in song, which clears Morgan's mind of all memories. He wakes and smiles as he looks upon the magnificent kingdom that Legia has created within the underwater dome. The two are happy most of the time but Legia notices each time she returns to the sea to gather food that Morgan seems to stare absent-mindedly into the ocean, as though searching for his lost memories. Then one day, Legia is attacked by a group of underwater creatures. She manages to call out to Morgan. The spirit of battle returns, and he grabs his sword and leaps into the sea. He slashes out at the attackers until only one remains, but ignoring Morgan, he throws his spear toward Legia, and Morgan quickly swims in front of it, saving Legia but receiving a deadly wound. Legia knows the only hope of saving Morgan is to use all of her magic. She kisses him and breaks into her beautiful song one last time, as the world she has created in the dome begins to crash down around her. Morgan awakes on shore. His wound is completely healed, but all of his painful memories have returned including the loss of Legia. Meanwhile, at Castle Demos, Herando, the self-named greatest thief in Scutaris, is searching through the ruins to claim all that he can find. 
but he finds little until he spots a skull-like ring on the finger of a disembodied skeletal hand. Hirondo reaches down and takes the ring, and as he slips it on his finger, he dies. The cover by Mike Grell is action-packed with Legia surrounded by three underwater creatures as Morgan swims toward them with his sword in hand. The two-page title page features Morgan at the ready as the other soldiers panic at the sight of the approaching ship of the raiders. I really like the look of Legia. With just a few tweaks, Mike Grell makes her look both otherworldly and familiar at the same time, while the underwater creatures who attack her later in the story are more lizard-like and vaguely resemble the creature from the Black Lagoon. There are a couple of great montages illustrating the time that Morgan and Legia spend together, and I love the scenes of her swimming, which remind me of Mike Grell's brief time on the Aquaman comic. The short sequence of Morgan without his memories is perfectly illustrated. At times, his memories are completely forgotten, and his face is so happy that he looks like a different person. But when his memories try to return, you can easily see the turmoil on his face. And we see our heroic Morgan return, even without his memories, as he leaps into battle to save Legia and readily puts his own life in danger to save her. It's a beautiful little story. The Warlord number 25, September 1979. The Sword for Hire. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks by Vince Coletta. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by Ben Oda. Edited by Jack C. Harris. Mashista and Mariah are talking at an oasis at the edge of the Great Desert as they watch Tara sitting at the edge of a pond staring into the water. They know that she is thinking of Morgan and the death of her son. Can she forgive him? Can he forgive himself? A hundred leagues away, Morgan has joined a mercenary band in search of a thief named Ashir. Not surprisingly, Morgan hasn't made any friends among the mercenaries, and he is currently engaged in a battle with a 350-pound brute named Atalus, as another mercenary named Shakal cheers them on. Morgan quickly disarms Atalus, who then challenges him to unarmed combat. Morgan readily accepts, throwing his weapon aside, but then Shakal tosses an axe to Atalus. Still, Morgan readily disarms Atalus once again and slams him into a tree. The leader of the group intervenes and reminds them that Prince Kali will give them a reward of a hundred weight of gold when they capture the thief Ashir. As the group makes their way up a mountain along a narrow winding ledge, a rock slide is triggered. Morgan recognizes it as a trap and calls out to the others to follow him to safety. But only the leader and Shakal survive with Morgan as the others plummet into the depths. Just then a snow giant appears and pummels the leader, killing him. Shakal swings his axe, cutting a finger from the snow giant's hand before it knocks him from his horse. Morgan leaps from his horse and rams his sword through the snow giant's ear and into its brain, and it falls dead into the valley below. From above, the thief of Shear takes the opportunity to attack Morgan, but Morgan easily deflects him over the side of the cliff where Shear barely manages to grasp at the ledge. Saying he is no good to him dead, Morgan pulls Ashir up onto the ledge and demands to know what he stole from Prince Kali. It was not money, but rather a woman, which makes Morgan think of Tara. Morgan turns to ride away, leaving Ashir to go his way, when Shakal appears with an arrow pulled back in his bow. Ashir asks, a friend of yours? To which Morgan replies, nope, just a corpse, and he shoots Shakal who falls over the cliff. Ashir turns back to Morgan and asks him to join him in a search for a nearby hidden temple where a great jewel called the Eye of the Truth is hidden. 
The cover shows Morgan in battle against the snow giant. It is nice to get a momentary check-in with Mashiste, Mariah, and Tara. The setting looks serene, and we're teased that they are not far off from Morgan. The double-page title-page spread in this book is laid out horizontally. It is a great visual, with Tara causing ripples in a pond, and below is a reflection of Morgan charging ahead in battle gear. I really enjoyed the page layouts in this issue. They help move the action forward, and they have a nice variety of zooming in for close-up views or zooming out to see the larger surroundings. And I like how the figures sometimes overlap nearby panels. It really helps bring the pages to life. The story was exciting and well told, and in the end I really like that Morgan can see more honor in a thief than in the mercenaries he has joined, and the story nicely sets up the next adventure. The Warlord, number 26, October 1979. The Challenge, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, inks by Vince Coletta, colors by Adrienne Roy, letters by Ben Oda, editor Jack C. Harris. Our story picks up with Chacal laying in the snow, bleeding to death from the gun wound that nearly ripped off his arm. He calls out in desperation for anyone to give him the opportunity for vengeance upon Travis Morgan, and suddenly a vision of the evil sorcerer Demos appears before him to grant his wish and a flash of light shoots toward his injured arm. A dozen leagues away, Morgan and the thief Ashir continue their journey to the temple and the jewel known as the Eye of Truth. But Morgan wonders aloud that if Ashir only calls himself the second greatest thief, how can he know that the greatest thief, Orondo, has not already taken the jewel? To this question, Ashir reveals a medallion that is supposed to hold the secret to the treasure, and without it, no one can claim the jewel. As they climb out of the valley, they clear the clouds that block out the sun that causes the frigid snow-covered conditions below, and soon their journey brings them to the Temple of the Sun. In his excitement, Ashir races forward on his horse, only to be attacked by a giant three-headed dragon-like creature. He is thrown from his horse, but Morgan races in, firing his gun, shooting two of the heads in quick succession and giving Ashir time to grab his sword and stab the third head as the creature falls to the ground. Inside the temple, the two find an altar encircled by four columns. Morgan looks at a symbol on the altar and notices it matches the symbol at the center of the medallion. He then takes the medallion and breaks it into five separate pieces and places the matching piece on the altar. A beam of light appears, revealing the figure of Tara, who accuses Morgan of betraying her trust and love. The beam of light then highlights a symbol on one of the four pillars that matches one of the remaining four pieces of the medallion. In turn, Morgan and Ashir insert the remaining pieces of the medallion into the symbols on each pillar, and each time a beam of light reveals another vision. Ashir's father appears before him. He was the king of Kumbuka, and as the royal prince, Ashir must return home to lead his people. Meanwhile, Morgan is taunted by Demos, who revels in delight that he forced Morgan to kill his own son. Once all of the pieces are in place, a giant orb of light forms in the center of the pillars. The Eye of Truth is not a jewel, but a doorway that can grant any wish. Ashir knows that he must give up his life as a roguish thief and return to rule his people, so the wish is granted to Morgan, who says he wishes he could start over from the beginning. Morgan then steps into the light and vanishes. Just then, a gunshot rings out and Ashir turns to find Shakal, who now has a mechanical arm with a gun attached. Meanwhile, under a distant moonlit sky, a figure steps from a glowing orb of light. It is Travis Morgan, literally starting over from the beginning, because it is a caveman who emerges from the orb of light. 
The cover features a dramatic image of Travis racing forward with a sword in one hand and his gun in the other. Inside, Mike Grell's excellent art shines with great landscapes including a frozen wasteland followed by the Temple of the Sun at the top of a long winding path. The opening images of Demos are great as his cape seems to have a life of its own as it billows in the wind. The plot device of the pieces of the medallion revealing the inner demons of both Morgan and Shear is well done, and you can see their internal struggles shown on the expressions of their faces. And there is another great cliffhanger that always makes you want to read the next issue, but that will have to wait until next time. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books, I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic, comic books. books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help you decide every tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com star slayer number seven the director's cut september 1995 written and illustrated by mike grell letters by steve haney colors by rob pryor edited by mike gold as the Jolly Roger races toward Earth, Torn wonders why Tamra is not pleased that the mission is nearly over. But she tells Morgan that he doesn't understand the true nature of what she must do. She turns to Sam, who tells her that Syzygy is in 12 hours and 2 minutes. They must hurry and warp forward, but the sun lies between them and the Earth, so they warp to the edge of the asteroid belt as they face the giant sun at the center of the solar system. When they come out of the wharf, they find a squadron of ships waiting to attack them. But together, Tamra and Torin outmaneuver and outrun their attackers. As they get closer to Earth, giant laser cannons begin to fire upon them, so they quickly duck behind the moon. From the other side of the moon, the more maneuverable Bow Spirit shuttle flies toward a giant pyramid on Earth. Tamra explains to Torin that one of these pyramids exists on each of the other worlds in the solar system. As the bow spirit lands, our heroes and Sam proceed inside, where they overpower a squadron of soldiers and enter the chamber of the governing council. The governors call her a traitor, but Tamra declares she has completed her mission by returning with all of the amulets of power. 
However, she will not allow them to be used as an energy source to wage war against the other colonies as the Council wants. Instead, she will use the amulets to power the many pyramids throughout the solar system. Her research has shown that the ancients built these pyramids long ago for this very day, knowing the sun would die and that people must go out to the stars to survive. The pyramids are designed to work at the time of syzygy, which now approaches, when all of the planets and moons throughout the solar system will align for the first time in two millennia. The governors turn to Torin to stop Tamra, but then they realize why she chose Torin. He holds no allegiance to them. He will support Tamra. With the addition of the amulets of power, the machinery in the pyramids roars to life on Earth and across the solar system. The governors and inhabitants of Earth have a mere 22 hours to escape the gravitational force of the newly powered stronger and brighter sun, which will provide enough heat and light to the outer colonies to give them time to find new homes among the stars. This issue really raced forward at full speed as lots of secrets were revealed and we learned of Tamra's surprise plan. Tamra and the Governing Council quickly turn on each other and no one seems surprised as if they all expected it from the beginning. I really like the way Torin stood by Tamra's side in the end. He has no love for anyone in this time, but he does respect Tamra. The cover features an image of Torin running with a sword in one hand and a gun in the other as Sam rides on his shoulder. It is quite dynamic and I like how the Jolly Roger streaks across the background. The art is consistently great in this series, and this issue does not disappoint. There are several close-ups of Tamra throughout the issue, and her expressions are always unique and set the tone of the story. The Jolly Roger's battle in the asteroid field and the bow spirit's flight to Earth are exciting and varied. The scenes in space are simply beautiful. This seems almost like the end, but we have one more issue remaining in Mike Grell's run that we'll cover next time. Greetings listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I host the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts explore the media multiverse of geek culture with such shows as Welcome to Astro City and Secret Sagas of the Multiverse. Now I am proud to announce the newest addition to the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, Dial G for Gamer, a superhero gaming podcast. Dial G for Gamer will be a semi-monthly show where I and my co-hosts play and review games with a superhero theme. From tabletop games to video games, we will take on the genre one superhero game at a time. So if you love superheroes and gaming as much as we do, then tune in to Dial G for Gamer. You can find episodes of Dial G for Gamer with the other Pulp to Pixel podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Pulp to Pixel, where I go under the name Dr. G Nerdologist. And you can find episodes directly at our blog, pulptopixel.blogspot.com. Right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. He meddled in things.
Green Arrow, number 17, April 1989, The Horseman, part 1, written by Mike Grell, pencils by Dan Jurgens, inks by Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, letters by John Costanza, colors by Julia Laquamet, associate editor Brian Augustin, editor Mike Gold. Our story opens with a man riding a motorcycle into town at sunset. He stops at Fast Freddy's Folly Strip Club, where he says he's searching for Dawn. She's 22 years old, 5 feet 6 inches tall, and has red hair. The bartender isn't interested in helping, so the man heads toward the stage door where a bouncer tries to stop him. A brief fight ends with the bouncer on the floor as the biker walks backstage and begins questioning the dancers. The bouncer returns with two others to help him. They're carrying baseball bats and guns. Following another brief fight, the biker walks outside where he tosses a Molotov cocktail into the Cadillac of the owner of the club. Across town, Oliver and Dinah are at a very different type of club. They're enjoying dinner while listening to live music, and Dinah is even able to coax Oliver onto the dance floor. Meanwhile, at Manny's Boom Boom Room, the announcer introduces Dawn, and a redhead walks onto stage to begin her dance routine. Later, backstage, Dawn talks to Cherry, whose real name is Glennis. She's a student trying to earn some extra money. Dawn tells the 19-year-old Glennis to get out of the business. Dawn tells her that she's only 22, but looks like she's 34 because this kind of work and the drugs that go along with it age quickly. In another part of town, the Emerald City Social Club has been attacked by a biker looking for a redhead named Dawn. He left a name this time. He called himself the Horseman, and he told the owner to call his supplier. The owner of the club calls the organization he pays for protection and gives them the details. Later that night, the Green Arrow is out on patrol, where he stops a drug deal in a dark alley. But when he rounds a corner, he sees the body of a scantily clad, red-headed woman nailed to a wall, as though she's been crucified. Lieutenant Cameron arrives with the police to collect evidence and remove the body before the press can get any pictures. An enraged Oliver wants to know anything that Cameron can tell him. All they know so far is that a biker has been busting up strip clubs looking for a redhead named Dawn. To that, the Green Arrow says, nobody deserves to die like that, except the one who did that to her. The cover is by Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano, and shows the Green Arrow's shocked face with an image of a woman hanging on a cross reflected in a broken window behind him. It's a striking cover, and an interesting way to suggest the contents of the story in a much less graphic manner than is seen inside the issue. This is a well-told story, though a very difficult one to read. The series certainly earns its mature reader's label here, with lots of nudity and lots of graphic violence. Personally, my favorite pages are the very first page with the horseman riding on his motorcycle. It is sunset and the colors are beautiful. Also, there's a sequence in the middle of the story where the pages are split in half. The left side of each page shows Oliver and Dinah having an enjoyable night out at a dance club. There are lots of couples together with smiles on their faces and the panels are brightly colored. Meanwhile, the right side of each page shows Dawn dancing at the Boom Boom Room. The colors are dark and smoke fills the room in each panel. Solitary men sit at dirty-looking tables staring at the stage. The juxtaposition of the message of this story is vividly clear in those pages. Green Arrow number 18, May 1989. The Horseman, Part 2. Written by Mike Grell. Pencils by Dan Jurgens. Inks by Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters by John Costanza. Colors by Julia Lackamut. 
Associate Editor Brian Augustin, and Editor Mike Gold. The story picks up in the penthouse apartment of Mr. D'Agostino. He's lecturing Freddo, the leader of the Road Hogs biker gang, about his poor handling of the situation, which led to several establishments in the city being trashed by the horsemen, including one of his own. While Freddo might have taken care of Don, the horseman is still on the loose. Mr. D'Agostino gives Freddo one day to resolve the situation. Freddo turns to his second-in-command and tells him to get all of the road hogs on the street, searching for the horseman. The horseman arrives at Pink Freud's strip club. The bouncer outside is unable to stop him, and moments after he enters, the owner comes flying through the window. He doesn't know Don, but he's heard about a redhead named Don dancing at Manny's Boom Boom Room. As the horseman gets on his motorcycle, some of the road hogs arrive, telling him this is their territory. A voice comes from behind saying, no, this is my territory, and they turn to see the green arrow with bow in hand. Gunshots, arrows, and fists fly, and at the end of it, only the green arrow and the horseman remain standing. As they aim their weapons at each other, Oliver tells the horseman that the police think he killed Don, and so did he, until he found him still searching for Don. The horseman stumbles barely able to stand after hearing the news of Don's death. Oliver wants to know the story, and he learns about a nice kid from a small town who thought drugs and high rollers were fun until it led to a life of addiction. She wanted out, and there was a cop willing to help in exchange for some evidence on a high-level mobster. Don got photos, but before she could get them to the cop, she ended up across the border thinking the cop had abandoned her. The devastated horseman rides off on his bike. Green Arrow goes to Manny's Boom Boom Room, where he initially finds only dime store makeup and costume jewelry, but a further search turns up a hidden key. Oliver rides off on one of the Road Hog's bikes and manages to catch up to the horseman as he reaches the border. It's not the end of it, you know, says Oliver, as he tosses the key to the horseman. She died to give this to you. Now finish it. The next day, at a Vancouver bus terminal, the horseman, now wearing his uniform as a Canadian mounted police officer, uses a key to open up a locker. Inside is a roll of film. The cover is by Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano, and shows the Green Arrow riding a motorcycle with his bow in hand as several members of the Road Hogs biker gang fire guns at him. Following the tragedy in the previous issue, we find hints of justice in this issue. What will become of Mr. D'Agostino? Will future issues tell us? There are some great pages inside, including a two-page montage as Oliver and the Horsemen fight the Roadhogs. I particularly like the way the Horsemen's mirrored sunglasses were used to show revealing reflections throughout the story, such as the Roadhogs arriving at the club, Green Arrow aiming his bow in the rain, and the reflection of Oliver on a motorcycle at the Canadian border. The horseman seemed genuinely pained by the story he told, leaving the reader confident that he will do whatever he can with the evidence he finds. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate every comment. They add a lot to the show. Thanks to everyone who took time to write in or to get in touch with us through social media. Mike Grell was a guest at DragonCon this year, and we had the opportunity to hang out with him at his table some over the weekend. He was also the special guest at a panel celebrating the 75th anniversary of Green Arrow. 
That character was always a favorite of his, and he specifically asked to work on the title when he returned to D.C. Over in the comic artist alley, Mike had a great selection of original pages, some new prints, and as usual was happy to sign items for fans or create a special sketch. He loves to talk with fans, and we certainly made sure we stopped by his table. The comic artist section was in a new location this year. The space was larger, with wider aisles and better lighting. I really like the change. There were also video arcade games and vendors booths nearby. We also had the chance to spend some time with Chris Klamer, who volunteers for the Hero Initiative. We met him and his wife at HeroesCon this year, and it was great to have a chance for some more conversations and to catch up. By chance, we met Philip Schweier at Mike Grell's table. He was there to pick up a beautiful commission. He is a great fan of Mike Grell's work, and we really enjoyed our conversation with him. He attended the Savannah College of Art and Design, and he now works for the excellent Back Issue magazine, and he's an art director for the Skinny magazine. We arranged to meet Michael Bailey at the Mike Grell table, where we all had an interesting conversation about E. Nelson Bridwell's amazing memory. Mike recalled being in awe of how quickly Bridwell could answer any obscure question about comic continuity. Michael Bailey, known as Professor Bailey to many for his own encyclopedic knowledge of comics, has several podcasts, including Views from the Long Box and Bailey's Batman, and he co-hosts the weekly broadcast of Radio KAL Live. We caught up with Michael again another day when he shared a terrific PowerPoint presentation at a panel called Superversary, along with several other hosts, including Joe Crow, who runs the American sci-fi track at DragonCon. Michael's been doing the Superversary panel for a few years now to celebrate the anniversary of comic characters. This year, Green Arrow was featured, along with Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Plastic Man, and others. We were happy to meet Michael's lovely wife, Rachel, after the panel and really enjoyed our conversations. They are a terrific couple. Lee Garvin let us know that he met Mike at a signing in Monterey back around 1987. At the time, Warlord was still running, and it remains one of his favorite comics of all time. It is great that Lee met him back then. We were reading his books at that time, but we had to wait a very long time before we had the good fortune to finally meet him at a convention. Joe Crawford of the Non-Discerning Readers blog wrote about our Episode 8 with the Mike Grell interview. He said, Great episode. Really enjoyed all of the interviews. Comic origin stories are the best. I really love Rob Kelly's Hate Kids comics. Yes, we love Rob Kelly's book as well. So many great stories. It is an anthology of true stories from a variety of people on how comic books change their lives. The audiobook version is well done, so if you're like me and enjoy listening to books while driving, I really recommend it. The irredeemable shag of Firestorm fan and the Fire and Water Podcast Network commented, Such a fantastic episode. Mike is a wonderful interviewee, and he's saying, Such a win-win. We're happy that Adam Pastoroy found us on Twitter. He said, I love that we live in a world where this podcast exists. Thanks, Adam. And Dr. Staines is a new listener who also found us on Twitter. He wrote about his favorite Mike Grell character, saying, I really liked his Green Arrow run, but my favorite character would probably be John Sable, especially the later issues. Regarding our last episode that included a review of Tarzan and the Gods of Opar, we heard from former DC editor and our friend Laurie Sutton. She said, nice review. Mike Grell was born to draw Tarzan. She added, I've always loved Law of Opar because Law, Lori, Law is the start of Lori, Law is a part of Lori. Yeah, that's cute. (laughs) She shared compliments with Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog as well, where we first teamed up with him to share our review of that story. We agree completely with Lori that Mike Grell was born to draw Tarzan. We try to get a commission from Mike Grell whenever we see him, And at DragonCon, we got an amazing original drawing of Tarzan that we'll share on our social media pages. It's gorgeous. Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comic Podcast Ever 
now that's a name only, had the wonderful opportunity to host a panel with Mike Grill and Michael Golden at the Kansas City Comic Con. Jerry did a great job moderating the panel. Mike Grill is a master storyteller, both in comics and in person. So take a listen. We'll have a link in the show notes. Karen Williams of the wonderful blog Between the Pages shared an article from Comic Book Resources about the Rocketeer getting its start as a backup story in Star Slayer. Very interesting. Coincidentally, Mike Grell discusses the Rocketeer in an interview by Wendy Freeman of the Double Page Spread podcast, where she spoke with him at Heroes Con. He talked about how much he likes the Rocketeer and how he truly loved the film. They also discussed his influential work on Green Arrow, dream casting of John Sable, and more. So check out the show notes for a link. We heard from several of those who won prizes in our recent contest. Paul Hicks said woohoo when he heard he had won a prize. He kindly said he loves all three of our shows. Paul selected the Warlord trade as the prize and let us know he'd be patient on waiting for its arrival, as it must make its way to him in the beautiful land of Australia. Somehow, we think Paul, who is a fan of the Doom Patrol, has had some practice waiting. Be sure to check out the fun podcast he does with Mike Garvey called Waiting for Doom. Alan W. Wright of the amazing Robin Hood website Bold Outlaw was also a happy prize winner. He said, My first love has to be Green Arrow but I'd be interested in sampling Warlord after listening to your show. I also bought the John Sable volume on Omnibus, and I'm enjoying his exploits. We're really happy to hear how much you're enjoying the other stories, Alan. Alan continued, I was just thinking after listening to the latest podcast how John Sable, Jake Moses' origin has traces, if faint, of the Ballad of Robin Hood's progress to Nottingham that was often placed at the beginning of the Ballad collections as kind of an origin tale, and perhaps more so, elements of Blind Harry's account of William Wallace avenging the death of his wife. Alan is an expert on Robin Hood, and I'm a huge Robin Hood fan, so I appreciate those insights about the origins and their relation to Robin Hood. By the way, for the 75th anniversary of Green Arrow, Alan posted a terrific in-depth interview with Neil Adams. We'll include a link to that in our show notes as well. Jay of the Silver and Gold podcast wrote excitedly to say, I don't think I've ever won anything before. Thanks so much. He also said, I love your show, not just for the content, but I really love that you guys do it together. Thanks, Jay. We appreciate hearing that. Doing these shows together is something that means lots to both of us. And thanks for tagging Dan Jurgens on Twitter about the Warlord. It was great to see him chime in on the conversation about drawing the title back in the 80s. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog shared a photo of a big smile and his appreciation for his Longbows Hunters book that he won. Gus Ceballos, who runs the excellent Mike Grill Facebook page, was also a prize winner. He wrote, Thank you. I got my prize in the mail today. I'm ecstatic. I finally have a copy of The Longbow Hunter signed by the legendary Mike Grill to add to my collection. Thanks for having the best darn Mike Grill podcast in the world and keep up the fine work. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl sent his thanks and shared a great photo of himself holding his prize, the first warlord trade signed by Mike Grell himself. And our thanks go out to the Irredeemable Shag for alerting us to a beautiful firestorm sketch that Mike Grell did for Roger Preby at a convention at the Buffalo Comic Con. It was amazing. Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine podcast researched and shared some historic figures with us. He found the Capital City distribution orders for Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, and John Sable Freelance. Those were interesting to see and compare. Thanks for sending them. Back in Episode 8, some of the other podcasters we were able to interview at Heroes Con shared their Mike Grell comic origin stories. And Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary took the time to write in and include his Mike Grell origin. He said, First off, I have been slowly making my way through the Warlord Showcase book. I'm on issue 18 or so. I didn't want to gobble it up quickly, so I've been pacing myself. It's a crazy book. 
I love the weird culture of Skataris. I think my favorite character is Mariah. The warlord accidentally went to Skataris, but she chose to go. That is one kick-butt woman. Second, I've never read any of Starslayer, but it sounds reminiscent of Howard Chaikin's Iron Wolf stories from Weird Worlds. I love Iron Wolf. So now I have another book to hunt down. Well, actually, Anne, you're in luck because we've heard that Dark Horse Comics is going to be printing a trade collection of Star Slayer later this year. As for my comic origins, let's set our time machine for the mid-70s. I came from humble beginnings. My parents had saved enough money to buy a second house near the beaches in Rhode Island. It was a tiny cottage that needed a lot of work. We didn't have the resources to easily furnish or supply two households, so a lot of what was in there, furniture, plates, pans, etc., was bought from yard sales. I can remember my dad getting the Friday newspaper and circling all of the yard sales and flea markets we would go to on Saturday. It was a summertime tradition. I read at an early age, and my parents wanted to encourage that, and so when possible, they would get me comics to read. And many of those earliest comics were purchased at yard sales on the cheap. While I'm talking about reading comics in the latter half of the 70s, the books I consider my first comics were all from the very early 70s, too early for me to have read them when they were first released. Many of those first books were Mike Grell Legion books. In fact, I consider my first comic to be Superboy and the Legion number 211, in which Element Lad goes on a revenge mission to kill Roxas. From the beginning, I loved Grell's art and recognized the style. I have pretty much all those early issues by him, many saved from back in the day. His art on those books is just mesmerizing. I hope you will cover those issues at some point on Warlord Worlds. Thanks for sharing your memories with us, Ange. We really enjoyed reading this and we'll add your vote to our list of requests to cover some Legion issues in the future. We have those issues in our collection, and we'll be covering them sooner rather than later. And speaking of Ange, not long ago he tagged us, along with Professor Allen of the Quarterbin Podcast on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, when he found an issue of both John Sable and Warlord in a Quarterbin. Great find, Ange. And speaking of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Emily and Professor Allen sent us an amazing surprise package of comics. This included Moon Cop by Tom Gold that looks like one we'll really enjoy, and a True Tales of Roller Derby issue, along with a four-part Doc Savage story by Dennis O'Neill and Adam and Andy Kubert. I never knew there was a comic about roller derbies. I need to tell my cousin who's on the team about this one. And we were both amazed to find a signed copy of Strangers in Paradise, Molly and Pooh, signed by Terry Moore himself. We're longtime fans of Terry Moore, but this was an issue we didn't have at all, and now we have a signed copy. Having read Strangers in Paradise as it was released, and more recently Echo and Rachel Rising, this was the perfect item for us. Thank you, Emily and Alan. We recently caught up with the irredeemable shag of Firestorm fan when he passed through our town on his world tour, and fellow Firestorm fan Keith G. Baker, who lives in the area, joined us as well. We had great conversations at a local comic shop where Shag even picked up a few issues of The Warlord. We had lots of laughs, got travel tips from Shag, and were deeply impressed by Keith's keen knowledge of the world of superheroes, including anything related to sports teams and comics. He really pays attention to details. From the comic story, we went to a nearby restaurant and then sat outdoors to enjoy some ice cream on a hot summer evening, when Keith and Shag both shared their Mike Grell comic origin stories with us. First up is Keith, followed by Shag. Well, I went back and found out that I read a lot of Mike Grell that I didn't know I read Mike Grell later on after, right. afterwards, like Legion of Superheroes, and I think he did some action, uh, but the first time I ever remember finding out the name of Mike Grell was Longbow Hunters, of course. Oh, yeah. Was, I mean, I, I was a superhero guy, and then 
Longbow Hunters was just, was just so marketed at the time. I mean, it was it was everywhere. And I always liked, liked Green Arrow as a character anyway, so I was going to check that out. And it was, um, the miniseries was just so great. It was just, so, it was just something different. Yes. And uh, it, it just introduced me to to that type of art, the painting of the art and, and, and all that. It was it was it was not your standard superhero kind of stuff. Not at all. But I mean that's the first time I, I recognized his name. A few years later I went back and found out well, I'd been reading seeing Mike Grell stuff over and over before and just didn't know it. I right. Never recognized the name. So that's the first time I remember knowing who he was. Well, that's a good story. So Shay, tell us your Mike Grell origin story. The the first Mike Grell comic I probably ever touched would have been Warlord number 63 because it was the Baron Earth story. For some reason, I decided I needed to read the Baron Earth back up. I can't even tell you why at the time, but I just decided to. And I don't know if it really captured my attention because I didn't follow it for too terribly long. And I, I would have read the comic because he was writing it. Someone else was drawing it at that point, if I remember right. So I would have read that, and it probably didn't stick with me. The first time I ever saw probably a Mike Grell drawing would have been Who's Who number nine. Okay. It was the Green Arrow entry. Oh, yeah. And that was actually my very first Who's Who issue. Our family had, uh, we were having some renovate. We were, um, we were moving between houses. That's what it was. We were moving from one house to the next, and we couldn't be in the house for any period of time. We had to stay in a hotel. And my mother's a smart lady. She said, and I was all of, what year would that have been? 85, so I was 13. She said, you need to buy something that you can read for a long time. Well, I wasn't gonna buy a book. Why would I do that? So I bought a comic book with lots of words. Okay. I bought Who's Who and Marvel Saga. Those are two things you can put in a kid's hand and that would keep them busy for a long time. So I got Who's Who number nine, and I read that thing, every word, backwards and forward, over and over and over. And there's the Green Arrow drawing in there. Right. And I was fascinated with the Green Arrow because there was two Green Arrows. Yeah. There's the, the, there, there was two in there. I'm not imagining that, I hope. No, I, I think it, it has both of the drawings. Yeah. And so I was just like, what? I don't, what, huh, why? And I just kept reading it over and over, and that was probably the first time I ever saw a Mike Rell drawing. Now, when really actively focused as a, not a mature reader, but as a reader who was invested in the art and stuff, it would have been Longbow Hunters. That was the first time I would have really paid attention to who I was reading and what I was reading. And Longbow Hunters was great, yeah. no doubt about it. Absolutely loved it. So, I, you know, I was confused. I think probably it, it may have been when I saw the Who's Who entry, I'm not sure, about the, the similarities between Green Arrow and Warlord. I, 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 it's very well like that's the same guy. He's just here. He's wearing green. There he's wearing a helmet, right? So. Well, there's actually yeah, there uh, a crossover. part of the series la later where there's a crossover. Yes, yep. there is. And he shows up and they're face to face. Yep. It's, it's. I've got those. Pretty good. I've yeah. got those in the back of my Warlord comics. So I've got to get through 130 issues plus a first issue special and five annuals or whatever it is to get to that point. But yeah. someday I'll read. Yeah. That should be about the time that we finished covering them all. There That's go. the reason we cover so many issues in each episode. It's like, I had to look and say, okay, how many more years am I going to live? <laughs> Can I get through all of Mike Grill's comics before this? Right. I still got to do Legion. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. If we happen to miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just let us know and we'll be happy to correct that next episode as well. Adam Pastery, Alan Leach Jr., Alan W. Wright from BoldOutlaw.com, Ange from the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford from Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey, BC Fan 101, Brian Mulvey, 
Brian Rygate, Bronze Age Babies, Captain Marvel 75, Chris Tyler, Christopher Luke, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Corey Hodgson, Cullen Stapleton from the Worst Comic Podcast Ever, Comics Legend Dan Jurgens, Diablo Frank of the Idle Head of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog, DJ Ruthless, Dr. G Man of Dirdology from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Dr. Staines, Ed Terry and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Eric Wise, Eric Mannix from Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, comics great Gene Gonzalez, who's worked on Perils on Planet X with Christopher Mills and is now working on his own title called Space Jungle Girl, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Podcast, Joe Crawford from the blog For the Non-Discerning Reader, Joe Sullivan, John Baker, John Holloway from the Worst Comic Podcast Ever, Jolie Eccles, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning from the Superman Captain Marvel Power Hour, Larry Looper, a.k.a. The Question, at Vic Savage 2005, and writer for The Retroist and host of Radio Memories Podcast. Lori Sutton, our Dragon Con friend and writer of You Choose Adventure Books. Lee Garvin, Mark Reed, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun blog and podcast, and Comics Couplets. Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous blog. Michael Bailey of the Fortress of Baileytude and Views from the Long Box. Michael Carlisle of the Crap Box Son of Cthulhu blog. Michael Collins. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age, Mike McLarty, Neil Patterson, Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections, Patrick Hayabusa, Paul Carroll, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Philip Schweier of Back Issue Magazine, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and the soon-to-end Secret Origins Podcast, Scott Kress of Catskill Comics, Shag Matthews of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, also known as Firestorm Fan. Stephen Mallison, Silver and Gold Podcast. Tim Wallace of the Cord Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the Phantom Skull Cave Blog. Tony Greenall, Travis Ramser, Van C. of the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. And Wendy Freeman of the Double Page Spread Podcast. Before we go, we'll provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I think it's a good way to help the show be noticed and hopefully attract more listeners to the show. And please consider subscribing to the show. It makes it so easy to know when a new episode is posted. You may also enjoy our other podcasts, Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Mm -hmm.